Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. If you have questions about our church or following Jesus, feel free to reach out to us at info at theplantchurch.org. Now, here's today's message. Uh, Would you open up your Bibles, please, uh, to Revelation chapter 5. Revelation chapter 5. We're going to uh, spend our time. We, this summer we've been in this series um, feasting on the word. And we've just been jumping all over the Bible. Studying different passages of scripture. Uh, and, and really wanting to know what is God saying to our community today. Um, I believe uh, Pastor Paul was here last Sunday. How was that? Good. Imagine people were like, it was terrible. <laughs> they wouldn't say that. I know Paul's a great preacher. And um, my friend Steve Bailey was here the Sunday before that. How was Steve's message? Great. Got a couple thumbs up. <laughs> like, we were on vacation. We weren't here. Uh, we, don't, we don't know. Uh, go back. Listen to our podcast. Check it out. It's on iTunes, Spotify, all the normal podcast places. You definitely want to check out those mus- messages. I heard it, Steve's in particular. He knocked it out of the park. So uh, it, it was an awesome, awesome message. So we've just been studying different passages throughout the scriptures. And, and this morning, um, we're, we're going to finish doing that. And uh, I'm taking a risk by going to the book of Revelation. Not really a risk, but a little bit. Um, and and I'll, I'll share more about this in a minute. But Revelation is a funny book because there's a lot of things that people interpret from this book. Um, and we're not going to go into that world today. Um, we're, we're going to just offer what I think is a, a, just a very broad uh, overview of understanding some, uh, sp- a couple specific passages in here that I think God wants to share with us today. That's about as clear as mud, but um, we're, we're going to get into it now. I told you, it's been three weeks, guys. I got to warm up. Um, how many of you have ever uh, seen one of these? You can go to that next slide. One of these uh, memes before. These are kind of funny. Uh, this is this is kind of uh, how you know your your what level of like worshiper you are. A, this is a joke, by the way. Um, there's there's the rookie level worshiper where you kind of do the elbow flap with your hands in your pocket like this. Anyone anyone just at that rookie level with your with your worship. Um, what is the other one there? I like that. The carry the TV. This is kind of at the rookie level. The rookie level carry the... You really got a kick out of that. That's great. Um, intermediate. My fish was this big. I love that. What else we got on here? Oh, pro level. When you start to get to the, the pro level, we have dueling light bulbs. Just like that's... that's but that, you're like a pro worshiper at that level. When you're, when you're doing that, someone's like, wow, he's doing dueling light bulbs. He's really a pro worshiper. And then, um, but then when you're an expert worshiper, man, you are, you are like, wow, they are meeting with God. You do the Rocky. Fun fact, I've not seen a single Rocky movie. I guess it's like, we're not in the Philly area, so I guess that doesn't land quite the same. You say that in Philly and they're all shocked. And then I say, Rocky wasn't real, guys. It was a movie character. Anyway, so you do the Rocky, like you're a pro-level worshiper. Now, these things are really funny. You've probably seen Instagram is a great place to go if you just want to see a bunch of things that make fun of like modern, modern worship and modern worship culture, it, all, in, all in good fun. Um, there's, there's things in every culture that we do that, that are kind of the accepted postures of worship. Right? There's things we, we do because maybe we saw some worship leader on a video do it once and now everyone's doing it. Um, or, 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 you know, you, you kind of have things from your own cultural background that, like, this is probably about, the elbow flap's probably about as, like, uh, expressive as I'm going to get during our worship time. That's just, whatever your church background or your culture upbringing, we all have kind of different ways. And, and so this is just kind of poking fun at that a little bit and, and bringing some humor to it. But one of the things that I think this is, is funny about this is that often we have this belief that if I'm going to really be worshiping God, 
there's a certain posture that is more appropriate or more holy or more effective, the rocky, versus another, the elbow flap. And if I'm worshiping this way, oh, I'm really, well, I'm really meeting with God. But if I'm like, I don't think that person's worshiping right now. You know, or they're not very good at worshiping. You know what I'm talking about? We joke about these things, and this is totally a joke, but humor often points to things that we kind of have a certain belief is true. Isn't Isn't that the case? Sometimes we joke about the things that are, are the most true because humor is a good way to kind of say it without making too big of a conflict. There's, so there's a lot of tension sometimes, and, and I think especially today, how many of you just love worship music? You love worship music. Some of you, not everyone's into it. Uh, you know, I, I have a worship background. I was a worship pastor for a long time. Uh, and, and so worship music is something that... Uh, I just have always kind of been around and listened to. And some people love worship music, and they hear that song, and they're just like, they go for the Rocky. They're just in it. And other people, they're, they're not as responsive with it. But for a lot of people, especially in, in our culture today and in church culture today, um, we're really drawn to worship music. But one of the tensions with worship music and, and kind of the worship industry that exists nowadays is it's really easy to know how to look the part of a good worshiper. Do you know what I'm talking about? And this, this kind of typifies that. Like, we know kind of intuitively what might look like really powerful, expressive worship and what's not really as impressive worship. But the, the reality is, is, is that the, the outward signs, why they can be nice or helpful or they can be expression of what God's doing in your heart, they really don't mean anything. I, I think about the prophet Joel. He, he was looking at uh, Israel's expressions of worship in their day. And in their day, if you were the, the, the expert level worship move in, in Israel's day was to rip your garments to show that you are really worshiping. Like, I am so broken before God. I'm totally devoted to him. And you'd rip your garments. And you know what Joel said to the worshiping community in Israel? Man, stop ripping your garment. It'd be so expensive if we did that, right? It'd just be going through new clothes every week. You wouldn't wear your Sunday best on Sunday because you're just going to rip it. Uh, and, and so Joel's like, we, you know what? I see what's really going on in your hearts. Stop ripping your garments. He says, rip your hearts. The old, I think King James says, rend your hearts, not your garments. Like we, we show some remorse. Show that God is, is breaking you deep down inside. Don't give me the rocky. Like, can you, can you really, that's when he says we're starting to really worship. Are you guys following me? If you haven't figured it out, we're going to talk about worship this morning. But, but my question is, in, in our day and age, with all of these things that are on, and, and we know how to sing the songs, and we know how to raise the hands, or sway, and some of you are swayers, some of you are just elbow flappers, it's okay. But here's what I want to ask this morning, in this kind of, culture where we know the right things to do or say for worship, how can we tell what the quality of our worship is? How can we tell that we have this good quality, a fresh quality, a a pure worship? How do we know what pure worship is? Well, I want to read some scripture from Revelation that I think will help us get a sense of what this high quality, pure worship is like. Because it goes way deeper than, for the Israelites, ripping your garments. It goes way deeper than making sure your hand and your head's in the right position and you're nodding the right way or you're swaying to the music. It's so much deeper. And and this passage in, in Revelation 5 talks about what that is. So would you read with me? We're going to read Revelation chapter 5. I'm going to read verse 4. Um, and this is going to set the stage for what we're going to talk about. We're going to start in verse 4, and uh, I think we're going to go down, down to verse 14. It says this. This is John. He's having this vision of, of heaven and what's coming at the end of, of all things. And he, he says, 
He began to weep bitterly because there was no one found worthy to open this scroll to read it. The scroll was supposed to show what God's will was for, for the world. And no one was able to open it. Everyone's like, no one can open the scroll. So John's weeping. How are we going to know what God's will is? And, and then someone says to him, stop weeping in verse 5. Look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the heir of David's throne, has won the victory. He's worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then I saw a lamb, John says, that looked as if it had been slaughtered. But it was now standing between the throne and the four living beings. And among the 24 elders, he had seven horns and seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that is sent into every part of the earth. And he stepped forward and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And when he took the scroll, the four living beings and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp and they held gold bowls filled with incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song with these words. You are worthy to take the scroll and break its seals and open it. For you were slaughtered and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked again and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and of the living beings and the elders. And they sang in a mighty chorus, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth in the sea. And they sang blessing and honor and glory and power belongs to the one sitting on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. And the four living beings said, Amen. And the 24 elders fell down and worshipped the lamb. Would you pray with me before we continue? Holy Spirit, I just ask that you would open our eyes to see and our hearts to receive and our minds to know and understand what it is that you want to say to us today. I pray, Lord, that we would would see and sense and understand how Jesus is at work in our lives. And I pray that we would come closer and draw nearer to Jesus as a result of what you want to teach us today, Spirit. In your name we pray, amen. So as I said before, I just want to give you a little context about Revelation. As I said, um, Revelation can be a very confusing uh, book to read. As, as I just read, there's a lot of things in there like, what's that about? That's strange. Uh, some of you have uh, different ideas that you've been taught Uh, if you're coming from a church background, about this. uh, There's varying interpretations about how to look at the symbolism that's here in Revelation. Uh, We're not really going to get into that. Uh, Perhaps at another time we'll unpack that. But what I want us to look at, just from a very broad perspective and our purpose today, is it has to do with how the Lamb is worship. Now the lamb, anytime you see in Revelation, this is referring to Jesus. He's the lamb of God that was slaughtered. And, and so I want us to just focus on that idea because there's a really important principle about what the quality of our worship look, should look like. How do we determine the quality? By how we see people worshiping the lamb of God. And that's what we're going to focus on This morning, John's writing this letter to churches in modern day Turkey, encouraging them to remain faithful. They've been oppressed, they've been persecuted, they've been in hard times, they've been marginalized by culture and society. It's hard to stay faithful to Jesus in the environment they're in. And he is writing them a book to encourage them, to give them hope, to see that the trials are going to end and that Jesus will be victorious. And this picture of worship happening before the throne of God is meant to encourage them that, listen, there's good things happening. You just can't see it with your human eyes. That's what the book of Revelation is. It's a revealing of what's really true. And, and so that's what John is doing. And, and that's the whole purpose. And, and one of the most important things for us to get that gets revealed 
in the whole book of Revelation, as I think in this passage. And, and, and John's there, he's weeping, he's crying, because the will of God, the scroll, it, it can't be opened by anyone. Scrolls in those days would have seals on them. And if you did not have the proper authority, you were not allowed to break that seal. And so they're saying there's this scroll from God and no one can open it. Like, what are we going to do? But the lamb has authority to open the seal and to understand and know God's will for the whole universe. And and so they're like, don't worry. The lion of the tribe of Judah is going to take care of things. And he's like, yes, the lion of the tribe of Judah. It's all throughout the Old Testament. You know, yes, this is this mighty, powerful beast that's going to defend us and take care of us and make God's will asserted upon the earth. And And John turns around and he's a little confused because there's not a big powerful lion there. There's a lamb that looks like it's been brutally destroyed. So here's this people that need an encouraging word. They're under a lot of pressure. They're oppressed. Some of them have been killed for their faith. And they're like, don't worry, the lion of the tribe of Judah's here. And they turn around, and I'm like, you're no better off than the church. How are you going to help us, this little lamb? Not even a full-grown sheep. Y'all awake this morning? They do what? How, how is this sheep supposed to help us? How is this lamb supposed to help us? It's looking like it's been slaughtered. I think that the lamb needs help. I don't think that lamb can help us. And thus the the, the revealing of the true nature of things starts to be unfolded. And this is really important for how we understand what the quality of our, how we discern the quality of our our worship. Are you following me? Some of you, okay. (laughs) Okay. Okay, I love this from from Leon Morris. He says this about the lamb. It is only the kingdom of heaven that would dare to use as its symbol of might, not the lion for which John was looking, but the helpless lamb, and at that, a slain lamb. Think, Think about a lamb. The lamb is a typical sacrifice in their culture. This is the the victim, the lamb. This is not a symbol of strength. This is a a symbol of suffering, of vulnerability, of weakness. These are all the things that that typify the lamb. The lamb is weak. The the lamb is is, is wounded. You can go to that next slide. Uh, The lamb is vulnerable. The lamb is humble. The lamb is weak, helpless. How many of you want to be identified with the lamb right now? No one's hand went up. That's so strange. None of you are excited about being identified with a slaughtered lamb? That's so strange. It's not strange, is it, right? Like, I'm, I'm on a hard pass. You got another animal I can be associated with? Something that makes me feel a little more powerful in charge? There is another animal, actually. We're going we're gonna to look at, at Revelation 13, verses 1 through 4. It says this. Then I saw a beast rising out of the sea, and it had seven heads and ten horns with ten crowns on its horns. And, it, on, and written on each head were names that blasphemed God. This beast looked like a leopard, but it had a, the feet of a bear. Listen, note all of the powerful animals. And the mouth of a lion and the dragon gave the beast his own power and throne and great authority. And I saw one of the heads of the beast seemed wounded beyond recovery. That word wounded is the same Greek word for slaughtered, referring to the lamb. Slaughtered beyond recovery, but the fatal wound was healed. The whole world marveled at this miracle and gave allegiance to the beast. They worshipped the dragon for giving the beast such power. And they also worshipped the beast. Who is as great as this beast, they exclaimed, who is able to, who is able to fight against him? So, so now we have 
another animal before us, not the helpless, weak lamb. We have a powerful beast. It was slaughtered. The same Greek word is used to describe this wound. Yet this beast has been completely healed. The signs of all the wounding are gone. The signs of all the wounding are gone. It's powerful. This beast is appealing. This beast is in control. This beast can handle anything that's thrown at it. This sounds a little more appealing, does it not? There's just one problem. This is the beast that's powered and given authority by Satan, the enemy. This is what the world, this is what the enemy wants us to think true power and authority is. The world flocks to the beast because honestly, I don't know about you, but I want to feel like I'm in control. I want to feel like I've got it all together. I don't want to be wounded and weak and helpless and vulnerable. You're just like, I wanted something light for the last Sunday of summer. You know me better than that. Oh my goodness. But listen, man, don't we flock to the beast if we're honest? Don't we flock to that way of feeling in control, of hiding our woundedness, of hiding our weakness, of not showing any kind of humility, being in charge, showing strength? I feel more comfortable when I do that. I feel very out of control and scared when I'm vulnerable, humble, show my woundedness, be honest about the wounds of my life. It's much more helpful to look to also someone who's strong and in charge and no one can fight or defeat the one I'm looking to and the one I'm putting my trust in. But sometimes, man, I'm like, I'm looking at that lamb going, I don't think this is going to end too well. I don't want to be like the lamb. I want to be like the beast. This contrast between the beast and the lamb is so important for us to see. Now, I'll read one more passage that happens shortly after this. Basically, what develops in Revelation is you've got the followers of the beast and you've got the followers of the lamb. And the followers of the lamb start to look and reflect the lamb. They're wounded. They go through hardship and suffering because they remain faithful to the way of the lamb. This is the big revealing that's happening in Revelation, the way things really are. But they trust the lamb. And then it says this at the beginning of Revelation chapter 14, verses 1 to 5. Then I saw the lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven. This is so beautiful. I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of mighty ocean waves or the rolling of loud thunder. He, He didn't quite know what he was hearing. And this is what it was. It was the sound of many harpists playing together. And this great choir, all of these followers of the Lamb, this great choir sang a wonderful new song in front of the throne of God and before the four living beings and the 24 elders. And no one could learn this song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. They have kept themselves as pure as virgins following the lamb wherever he goes. They have been purchased from among the people on the earth as a special offering to God and to the lamb. They have told no lies. They are without blame. I want you to see how important worship is to both of the followers here. And the followers of the lamb do something. They're wounded just like the lamb. They're following the lamb. They remain faithful to the lamb. And here's what I want you to see. This is so stunning. 
in, in what we read before in Revelation 5 when they started to sing a new song to the Lamb and here in 14 where they sing a new song to the Lamb. They're singing a song that no one else knows. They sing a new song that no one else can learn unless they've been following the Lamb. Unless they've been following in the way of the wounded one, they are not going to be able to know this song. And and here's what's so profound. This word new that gets used here, they're singing a new song. It's not, uh, there's two different words in the Greek for for new. One is the word neos. This is chronological uh, time. Something is older or newer. We have the all-new 2024 Ford Explorer or something. That is Neos new. There is a new thing coming out. It's newer in sequence, newer in date. Are you following me? That's not the word that gets used here in the Greek. The Greek word that gets used to describe both in chapter 5 and 14 and, and a lot of other places in Revelation where you see new heaven and new earth. It's not new chronologically. There's a word in the Greek called kainos. And this is a new that refers to something that is of a better quality. It is something that is purer, fresher, richer, fuller. This is the kind of new that describes the song of those who are faithful to the wounded lamb. There is a quality to their worship that is unmatched and cannot be copied unless you are following in the way of the wounded lamb. We think about this way of life. There's worship. We love that, you know, the beast is, is strong and powerful and all that. And then over here, you've got this weak lamb, but there's a song of worship coming from the followers of the lamb. They've been wounded just like the lamb. And the song of worship from their life is kainos. It's new, it's fresh, it's of a greater quality. And this song, it's John's describing this song. He can't quite explain what it sounds like. It's unbelievable, this worship. Now, they're not sitting here like, oh, they're doing the Rocky, so they must be the followers of the Lamb. Or they're, no, the real followers of the Lamb, they're just kind of doing the, the flap here like this. Has nothing to do with that. The quality of their, I'll say, their woundedness, because they've, their own woundedness, because they've been faithful to the Lamb, is on display here. Are you following me? Are you with me? wounds what do I mean by wounds now we all have wounds the beast was wounded too he was just healed and hit it and people love that you can get past it we love people who are look strong and project confidence it's really hard when you're like I don't know what to do it's really hard to follow a leader like that wounds though these are the scars of life the, the pain of life, the loss of life, the disappointments of life, the grief of life that Jesus has used to humble you and I, to draw us to himself. I don't know about you, but I have had some wounds in my life. And sometimes I get angry at God because of the wounds and the pain. I don't want to deal with it. I want to hide it. But when I start to get honest about the wounding, deal with the grief, allow myself to be like, I'm not okay. Jesus begins to humble me and lead me in a way that I didn't realize was even open to me. See, Jacob was wounded in Genesis, in the book of Genesis, after he wrestled with God. God touched his hip and he walked with a limp the rest of his life. It was a mark, it was a wound, it was a sign, a permanent reminder that he had met with God and was submitted to God. Think about Jesus. He rose from the dead. He's in his glorified body. He can walk through walls and he still has the holes and the wounds in his hands and in his side. Even Jesus doesn't go like, let's just get rid of that now that I'm in my glorified body. Absolutely not. He's like, oh, these, these are the marks of my obedience to the Father. I'm not going to let those go anywhere. What are the wounds that you've experienced in your life? 
the loss, the pain, the broken relationships, the job losses? Have they humbled you and have they drawn you closer to Jesus like the lamb? Or have they caused you to project strength and confidence like you have it together, like the beast? This is the challenge before us, church. We can let the quality of our worship be something so fresh, so unseen, so unreplicated by anything in the world. Or we can just kind of like go through the motions. Which would you like to have? Everyone gets to choose. So let's say that you're saying, man, this is hard, but, but I think I want to I learn how to worship with wounds. I want to learn how to follow the lamb. What, what might that look like? Let me just very quickly, in a few minutes, just share three, three practical suggestions for worshiping with wounds. How, how could this life look? First one, very simply, is practicing honesty. Practicing honesty, what does this mean? Don't hide your wounds. That's what that means. Now, you don't live like you are your wounds, but you also don't hide that they're they're in existence. Does that make sense? These are the losses, the grief, the pain, the failures. We talk about everyday mistakes too, not just the big ones. Being honest about, hey, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Practicing honesty. Don't spiritualize and over-spiritualize things that happen in your life. We can very easily have something really painful and horrible that happens and we like get super religious about it because we don't want to deal with the pain and we think that, well, this is going to make it look like I'm not faithful to God or I don't trust God. And, and, And instead of pretending like it didn't happen, actually we show how much we trust God by stopping to be honest about what happened. Because we know he's taking care of it in the big picture. But I need to stop for a minute. And I need to grieve. And I need to deal with this loss. We can't turn it into, well, God's got it. I, I guess God can do all things. It's, it's okay. Bless God. There's nothing to see here. Some practical things you can do to do that. Spend some time journaling. What are you mad about? What are you sad about? What are you afraid of? What are you happy about? Great things to help you be aware of what's happening in your interior world. Every time I do that, I'm surprised at some of the things that come up that I'm mad about or sad about. Even little things, I'm like, that's not a big deal. Don't do that to yourself. Just spend a few minutes with the Lord, process it. Maybe you need to talk about it with a friend in in a life group, in community. Make space to be like, huh, this occurred to me this week. Some of you might need uh, or find therapy helpful. That's definitely a helpful thing. Helps you unpack, especially really complex seasons or complex loss in your life. Complex grief, pain. Have good friends around you where it's okay to not be okay. Second practical thing we can do is, sounds really simple, but it's kind of (laughs) hard. Surrendering to Jesus. Surrendering to Jesus. Here's what this means. Don't try and figure it out on your own. Okay, I've got this sadness. I've got this grief. I'm going to be honest about it. Now I'm going to go try and figure out how to take care of this. Ah, We all do that too. We all do that too. I've done this so many times. Great. Got my checklist. I sat. I was honest about it. Now I'm going to go fix it. Thanks, God. Bye. What Jesus wants to invite us to do is to remain humble in those seasons and learn from him. We learn from him directly in prayer, but also he's asking us to humble ourselves in Christian community and let Jesus speak to us through other people. We need both. 
to be alone with Jesus and to be in the community and have them speak into us. That's all part of surrendering. Some particularly serious hardships uh, are known throughout church history as the dark night of the soul. If you've gone through our emotionally healthy spirituality class, you're familiar with that idea or the concept of the wall. It's these seasons in our life that are particularly tough, and it just seems like God has abandoned us. And in those seasons, we're not supposed to try and fix it, change it, or get through it. You just sit there and trust that God is doing something in the process. Now, that's surrender, because all of us, especially how many of your planners, my type A friends out there, I know you teachers in the room, I know, I know you're in here, but all those type A plan list people are going like, all right, here's what I got to do to get through this season, and do the things, have some healthy structures, journal, therapy, be in a life group, like process these things, but a lot of these really difficult seasons just sitting there and being like, Lord, may your will be done, I don't know what's going on. And then you come back the next day, Lord, may your will be done. I don't know what's going on. And you cry a lot about it. And you sit there. You sit there with the wounding, and you don't try and rush past it. As a friend of mine likes to say, there is no peace without surrender. If you want to get to true peace in Jesus, you must surrender fully to him in every season and in every crisis. And then finally, Practically speaking, we need to embrace our limits. Embracing our limits means this. Don't pretend that you have more power than you do. Don't pretend you're more in control than you are. Don't pretend you have more knowledge than you have. Practically, how how do we live that out? Uh, In four different ways I'll mention here to embrace your limits, and you should just be doing this. Uh, I, I would encourage you to try and live this out anyway. This is a great way to surrender to Jesus. First, uh, if we're going to embrace our limits in different seasons, that are diff- they change in different seasons, we need to learn how to uh, embrace the limits of time. I don't know how many of you know this, but you only have 24 hours in the day. And it's good, I think, to get seven to eight hours of those sleeping. It's healthy for you. Sabbath is important in that space. Not overfilling your calendar. Having margin. Because what that is saying is, I can't do everything. And I'm also a human, and I get tired sometimes. And if I don't balance my time on my calendar appropriately, I'm saying, oh, I have the power to do this. God is the only one that has infinite time. None of us do. We have 24 hours in a day. Seven days in a week. I know my type A friends hate me right now that I'm saying this. You're like, no, there's more time. We can make this work. I know. I know what you're saying. And I make the same mistake all the time. Second, not only time do we need to embrace limits. We need to embrace limits with our individual capacity. Some of us can carry more or do more things in certain amounts of time than other people. And that's okay to say no. Did you know no is a complete sentence, by the way? You can say no and choose to do less. Don't say yes just to people, please. Like, oh, I'm afraid that they're going to like, be upset that I didn't say yes to them. So, okay, I'll do it. And then you resent them three weeks later. Like, why did I say yes to this? I hate them so much. This is so unreasonable. But it's your fault. You said yes. That doesn't go over well in pastoral counseling when I'm just like, so this is your fault then. And they're like, no, it's their fault. I'm like, but you said yes. I do it too. It's so annoying. Sometimes when I'm asked to do things, I have to ask Jillian, and she's just like, will you regret this in three weeks? And I'm like, "Ah, I probably will. I'm going to say no. Or you know what? I don't know if I will, or I'm not going to. We need to embrace the limits of our individual capacity, and those change from season to season. Time, capacity. Third, money. Uh, I, I feel very strongly that I believe as Christians, and we'll unpack this more in, in future teachings, but I really believe as Christians we are actually called to live below our means. Not even at our means, below our means. Why? Because I believe that we are called to be generous people. And we cannot be generous if we live at our maximum capacity of our financial means. And most of us, many of us, 
have to learn how to resist the desire to accumulate material possessions. Because in our culture, accumulation of material possessions is a sign of success. I have the house, I have the car, I have the this, I have the that, I have the vacation. Oh, they're doing really well. We give them the thumbs up. And not that any of those things in and of themselves are bad to have, but we believe that our success and our worth is tied to owning those things. And as a result, many, the statistics are staggering, how many people have incredible amounts of credit card debt simply to chase the illusion that they have success through accumulating material possessions. And my friends, we cannot be the generous people that God has called us to be if we do not learn how to live below our means. But that means we have limits and we have to say no to things. We just say, you know what? That would be nice, but I'm going to adjust my expectations. Oh, who wants to do that, right? I know I'm supposed to be encouraging. Adjust your expectations. It's hard. It's hard. I'm not saying any of this is easy. I feel this. Finally, time. We need to embrace our limits with time. Not overfilling our calendar, learning how to Sabbath and rest. Capacity, not saying yes to everything. Do less, say no to things. Money, living within our means, even below our means. Finally, relationally, we need to learn how to embrace our limits. A couple things with this. We need to learn how to live in mutual submission out of reverence for Christ Jesus. What this means is, including the pastor's, We do not get to assert and uh, push our will at the expense of someone else's perspective. It means that we try and as best we can to ask questions and listen together in community and get different perspectives. And certain people, yes, do have responsibility to ultimately make decisions, but it's not because... They're making, we're making decisions by ourselves without any other perspective. Let me tell you, that's hard to do. It'd be really easy to just be like, we're doing this. Even with the, the cooks, this is a great example. We want to spend time over the course of several months to listen together. How do we mutually submit to each other in that way, relationally? We have to acknowledge our limits as humans, that we're not in charge of everything. Another thing, in other relationships, it can be really easy to try and control our friends and family members and try and assert what we want things to be like in their lives. Like, you ever heard, God loves you and I have a wonderful plan for your life? Some of you got that, that's okay. Uh, but, but when we need to learn how to embrace our limits relationally, what I can't say to my wife, for example, if, if I want to... Uh, spend time with her, for example, I cannot say, you never spend time with me. That's a manipulative statement. I'm trying to control and manipulate the relationship. Or the classic one is maybe the mother to the son. You never call me. And what we cannot do is, that's that's not embracing our limits. What we need to learn to do is, I would like to spend time with you. She's never going to say no to that. Like, come on. Or son, daughter, I would love for you to call me more often. How's once a week sound? But guess what happens when we ask a question instead of trying to manipulate people? People are allowed to say no. And that's scary. If we ask real questions, people can say no. But let me tell you, when we learn how to ask questions like that and not manipulate the relationship, we're actually, and then when they give their response and we respect their response and their answer, that's real love. Because real love does not control other people. And that is a powerful way of embracing our limits. So we embrace our limits with time, capacity, money, and relationally. Those are our practices. If we're going to learn how to embrace our wounding, we've got to learn how to get honest, surrender to Jesus, and then, man, we've got to learn how to embrace our limits, not to try and assert ourselves as in charge or do more than we have the power to do. Now, I, I think what I just gave you for some of us sounds like a recipe to make you less effective in life, if we're completely honest. And to a certain extent, you might be a lot less effective by the world's standards. 
But I believe that if we are going to worship with a higher quality, we need to learn how to live wounded, vulnerable, humble lives marked by following the Lamb. And when we do that, these are the kinds of things that we do. Practice honesty, surrender to Jesus, and embrace our limits. As a team comes up, I'll just close with this story. There was a young girl named Agnes, and she had this sense of God's tremendous call on her life. She would have these crazy, powerful visions of Jesus as a little girl, and she knew she was called uh, overseas to, to serve Jesus amidst, amidst the poor and, and among some of the, the most uh, unwanted people in the world. And, and so she went and followed Jesus to India when she was old enough. And, and she was there among the, the worst of the worst, according to the way the world viewed people, the weak, the powerful, the people that were in the lowest rung of the caste system in India. She gave everything to follow Jesus in this place, but she started to feel like God had abandoned her. And and she wrote these really depressing letters to her spiritual director, just saying, like, my soul is nothing but darkness. God's gone. And, And she just faithfully walked through this and kept following Jesus and following Jesus even in the midst of the pain and the wounding and crying out, going, God, where are you? And she was honest about it. She continued to surrender even though she wasn't there. And the sense of woundedness and helplessness went on for 50 years as she labored. And then she died. Now it seems like kind of a disappointing life from our perspective. But you and I know Agnes better as Mother Teresa. And I would say her impact was anything but small. But real woundedness marked her life. Real pain and loss. And she was honest and surrendered to Jesus and lived among the poorest of the poor. She learned what it looked like to worship with wounds, to offer the highest quality worship she possibly could to Jesus. It looked very unimpressive to the world around her. It wasn't to the end, towards the end of those 50 years that she started to show up in the news. She did that for years without anyone looking at her. And she would have done it even if no one ever did. How about you? Do you want to surrender yourself to a slaughtered lamb? Weak, helpless, vulnerable? It's like, ooh. What could come out of the life that worshiped with wounds? What's the new song that would come out of your life as you give yourself fully to following the Lamb wherever He goes? Let's just take a minute and be still. Let the Spirit speak to you before we close in worship. John the Baptist first said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus is standing in our midst this morning. And he's asking fresh, just like he does every day, will you follow me? Will you follow the wounded lamb wherever he goes? as a sign of choosing to follow him this morning, we're going to take communion together. Literally, a remembrance of the slaughtering of Jesus. 
If you need uh, communion elements, if you want to take these with us and you haven't gotten them, you can just put your hand up. Our connectors will get those to you if you need it. Up here towards the front, Heidi. Got a few. Just keep your hand up so they can see you. The body and the blood of Jesus. And we take them each week to remember the slaughtered lamb. And that we are a people following in the way of the lamb. Wherever he goes. And so we remember the night he was betrayed. He took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body. It's broken for you. Take and eat in remembrance of me. And that same night, he took the cup And he said, this cup is the blood of a new covenant, a kainos covenant, a fresher, purer, better covenant, one that's not built on power, it's not built on looking strong, it is built on following him in weakness. He said, whenever you drink from the cup, And eat of the bread, the Apostle Paul said, you declare the Lord's death, his slaughteredness, his woundedness, until he returns. Take and drink with him. Thanks so much for joining us today. If this podcast has been helpful for you to know Jesus and make him known, then check out our website for more sermons and other resources, theplantchurch.org. Thank you.